Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams. And you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance. Stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast. College football week one on the docket. Long wait is finally over, Payne. We go from preseason podcast to the regular season and meaningful football for the first time in a long time. Looking forward to it. We got our guy Dusty back in the fold. So uh, we're talking Oklahoma. That's one of the games. So I'll be interested to hear his thoughts on his beloved Sooners, but I'm regular season's here. It's go time, baby. Yeah, we got to make sure that Dusty's ready to hit the ground run in midseason form. Five big games that we'll get to a little bit later in the show. I know our listeners are chomping at the bit uh, as we dive into the marquee matchups on this weekend's schedule. But before we get there, uh, I know we want to do a little housekeeping first and foremost, and it pertains to the 5K football free roll that we'll be offering up to our loyal listeners. Still plenty of time to join. Just go to bettheboardcontest.com. If you've been in it before, it'll say, hey, are you an existing player? If you are, use that option. Or if you're a new guy who's been told about this, uh, sign up as a new player. We have over 1,300 entries already in just a handful of days. This is an NFL contest only. Pick five against five games each week against the spread. We use a weekly winner as well. So if you shit the bed the first couple of weeks, there's still a weekly component to it where you can win Visa gift cards and bet the board swag. Bettheboardcontest.com. You'll have until Sunday games NFL week one to join. So this is by far and away uh, the best free contest in the world. $5,100 up to grabs for the season long. And again, all the weekly prizes. If you can't make it out to Vegas, if you don't have 1500 bucks to join a contest, if you uh, don't want to have a deal with the proxy, this is the contest for you. Not even the uh, best free contest out there. One of the most competitive. You win this thing, you've done something with your life this football season. We've had our winners in the high 60s, I believe even the no. low 70s. 70%, the first, uh, yep. 70% the first time around. So you're able to win this football contest. You can take home the hardware. You can brag to your friends. You can tell the wife that all those hours you spent neglecting your kids pay dividends 
at least during the fall. I know it's the college football podcast, pain, but the biggest news of the weekend obviously came out with Andrew Luck, and while normally we would wait to cover it on the Pro Football Podcast, I felt it was worth addressing now. So we, of course, gave out the Colts to win the division way back when we did the offseason podcast. I'm sure you have a rant coming there. But I want to look at <laughs> what's happened in the market. We saw the Colts about a three-point underdog against the Chargers when Luck was supposed to be out there. Hybrid line went to 3.5. You see the number balloon as far as 9.5 at some shops out in the desert. And the consensus now more or less a 7, 7.5, and, and you've seen the win total all over the place. How do you evaluate the Colts without the face of their franchise? You said a rant is coming. The only rant would be that we're covering this um, on our kind of podcast. I get it's a massive story, but it's also been in the news uh, on every single radio show and television show for the last three days. And I get it. it it's it's the big topic. Um, so I guess it needs to be discussed. You know, good for luck. Do whatever he wants. Do whatever makes you happy. Um, but I do think there is an element to this where he kind of left the cold tie and dry. Um, you know, you, you could have alerted some guys. There could have been competition brought in, maybe a guy like Ryan Tannehill. I know it's not, you know, it doesn't sound flashy. It doesn't sound great. But right now, as it stands, Chad Kelly, who's suspended for the first two games, is the backup on this team. So it's Jacoby Brissett, and your backup's now suspended for two two games. It's it's tough in that regard, not letting these guys know. Um, For me, Jacoby Brissett, I think I like him probably more than the casual fan. You know, he has been working with the first team already. I like that element, although he was running Andrew Luck's system, right? So he was getting first team reps, but it was a system geared towards Andrew Luck. I think that'll probably be a little bit more molded to him now. Um, And then in 2017, we saw a guy in Jacoby Brissett who didn't, wasn't on the Colts roster. If you remember, they traded for him from New England. Wasn't on the Colts roster until like, I think September 3rd. And he was learning this new system. And he had a worse coach. And he had worse talent around him. And still he took leads into the fourth quarter nine times, which Chuck Pacano kind of squandered away. But this is a guy who now has more talent around him, a better support system both on the field and off in the locker room. I think everything's designed here. And I know a couple of the sports books, and I think we give Circa a little credit, they went off nine and a half down to eight. That feels more in line with things. I think if you're looking at the Colts and... I hate to tip our hand, but if this got to five and a half or six where some, some people open, it, not only are we okay, but we're probably re-entering the market with an investment on on Jacoby Brissett and the Colts going over that win total. Listen, like, not to go on a rant, and we've gotten a lot of questions, what do we make of this win total now? Well, it's like, hey, calling your accountant over and being like, hey, you see this account here? This is mine. It's got 2000 bucks in it, and my buddy's over here has a million. What, which account do you like better? Obviously, we like the Colts better with Andrew Luck, right? Um, but where we're sitting at now, and I'm getting a lot of, a lot of DMs, a lot of mentions, a lot of emails. What do we do now? Think about the rest of the landscape of that division, Todd, right? You had a Texans team who pro betters absolutely hated, drove their win total from eight and a half down to like 7.7. I know it's come back up now because of the luck issue. Um, you lose Lamar Miller. The other team in the division, the Tennessee Titans, was a team that got buried under by professional betters from eight and a half down to like 7.6 in some places has now gone back up a little bit to eight. But the idea that you're now going to turn an investment um, on the Colts, 
and and certainly it's it's a bad price at this point, but it still hasn't lost. And we still like Jacoby Brissett. The idea that we're going to like panic hedge into teams we absolutely don't like makes absolutely no sense. Um, I think Jacksonville, a lot of people have inquired about them. We like Jacksonville, right? But it's again, so now all of a sudden you're, you're leveraging yourself even more taking Jacksonville and they're not the favorite. For me, we're, we're standing pat. And then we're going to evaluate the win total again. And, and, you know, if it gets down to stupid territory um, where it's only, you know, I've seen six at like one or two places. It's not widely available, uh, but that's a number we're probably reassessing and looking to go over that as well. Yeah, seven and a half, kind of the consensus out here in the desert now on that win total. I have seen some shops shaded to the under. That was a three minute rant and I hate to cut you off, but just to kind of put this in perspective. And again, we say it all the time. This is one investment. Right. It's one. I know it sucks. It's that, you know, you stubbed your toe. It hurts for 48 seconds as men. Let's, you know, let's get the fuck over it. <laughs> I don't need any more DMs. I don't need any more mentions. It's one investment. We're going to make you know hundreds of them this season. It's really irrelevant in the, the grand scheme of things. So, so I know I know the national media has played it up. It's been the story for the last eight days. How many ever it's been? Let's get over it. We've moved on. You You want to get into the college football games? Let's do it. Well, with the regular season, it means the gang is back together. Payne, you and I did the uh, heavy lifting for the preseason podcast to get everybody ready, but we now bring in the talented member of our triumvirate. You can follow Dusty Dvorak on Twitter at Dusty Dvorak. I can't list off everywhere you can find him during the course of football season, but I will say he'll be on the call this weekend on ABC for Ole Miss against Memphis. Dusty, we missed you during the preseason. We know veterans' bodies don't hold up the same way if we make you go through two days and everything else that's required in, in anticipation for the season. No camp required uh, for the vets. That's exactly right. Boys, it's college football season. I'm fired up. I've been chomping at the bit. Let's rock and roll, fellas. All right, five games in the docket, boys. So let's get right into it. And we'll start out on the farm where it's Stanford playing host to Northwestern. You're looking at the Cardinal, a six-point favorite. Total in this game, 47. And we have seen some movement here throughout the course of the offseason, Payne. When we look at these two teams, almost feels like mirror images of each other. Not only their academic profiles, but the same type of work ethic and the brand of football they like to employ. Stanford a little bit down last year, as we mentioned, the preseason pod, Northwestern representing the West. But when you look at the market and the way what the way the number has moved so far, what does that tell you about how to approach this particular game? Um, so from what I have seen so far is the number is a little high. It tells us Stanford likely is the side here, but I know there's been professional betters that have been really looking to take seven and grab it anytime you get a chance. The total has kind of bounced back and forth a little bit. Um, some good, There's a battle going on there between the over and the under. Um, what I have seen, and I think why we're starting to see some of this action towards the over a little bit, and it came in this weekend, is, is basically how Stanford's going to run its offense. Um, and, you know, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, and, and I think David Shaw is kind of dwindling down that that usage of the mammoth formation that he likes to call it. And, and I know we've been banging the table for over a year now, and I think it makes even more sense when you have this new style and your best offensive weapon is a quarterback, K.J. Costello, right? So I think we're going to see a lot less running because it's that square peg round hole mentality. Uh, Stanford was 107th in rushing efficiency last year. 11th out of 12 Pac-12 teams in that category. And Bryce Love isn't there anymore. So I think 
kudos to, to David Shaw for changing things up a little bit more. We saw that take shape a little bit towards the end of last season, the final five regular season games. KJ Costello threw it 23% more of the time than the first seven regular season games. So I think that's why we're seeing this total tick up a little bit. Um, and it's just that new strategy that David Shaw is going to employ on offense. Dusty, when you look at this Cardinal team, I mean, Payne mentioned it. They couldn't run the ball at all last year. Bryce Love, such high expectations coming into the season, never quite materialized. We started to see KJ Costello get more comfortable uh, with a pass-happy offense, but he's going to be down a few of his marquee weapons. It looks like Colby Parkinson will be the most reliable receiving threat that he'll have back on campus this year. How do you assess the Cardinal and how they can go about trying to take care of an ailing offensive line that really let him down for extended stretches last season? I think it's exactly what Payne just talked about. I mean, I lean on my quarterback. I mean, K.J. Costello, uh, he was uh, had the highest passing efficiency in the Pac-12 last year. Um, and it's interesting because I think Payne's exactly right. This this Stanford team is really more from one of the more physical offensive lines in college football year over year to not. They're, they're not moving people off the ball. They're not running the football at will, which I give Shaw credit. They're going away from, like you guys said, those, those big packages, those two, three tight end sets. I still think, you know, the big tight end, shocker that they've got tight ends that can really catch the football at Stanford, but Colby Parkinson will be uh, the guy to go to. But I had a chance when I was in L.A. to talk with, uh, to sit and talk with K.J. Costello quite a bit, and he likes some of his young wide receivers. Uh, how much of that is him just uh, posturing and saying that? I don't expect him to say that he doesn't like them, uh, but he seemed confident, and I think he's a good player. Um, so you know, I give them credit. They have had to morph a little bit and, and change what they do. Um, and I think K.J. Costello, if some guys can emerge, uh, you know, they can be a, a legitimate offense. But I think still at some point you'd like to see them be able to, to hand the football off and run it. I don't think it'll be anywhere near the clip they have traditionally. Uh, but still, uh, you've got to be able to run the football in any uh, form of football. So until they can fully prove that to me, I've probably got more questions and answers about this Cardinal team. Payne, when it comes to Northwestern on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, we know what Pat Fitzgerald's been able to accomplish entering his 14th year at the helm of the year. Four straight seasons where his defense has allowed less than 24 points per game. We're not going to put them on the same level of Alabama or any elite teams in the country by any stretch of the imagination, but they seem to do more with less, although this year they go into the season without their top member of their secondary in Montre Hardage. How do you see Northwestern defensively matching up with what the Cardinals are going to want to do on the offensive side? Well, I think that's the interesting part about this, right? When you look at that opponent across from you, Northwestern's defense was top 20 in rushing efficiency, but they were outside the top 75 in passing efficiency. Um, And then you mentioned him, you lose the all Big Ten corner, Montre Hartridge. Um, They also lost their starting safety. So, you know, the last piece of film Stanford has on this Wildcat defense is them giving up a Big Ten title game record 499 passing yards. So that is how I think this even makes more sense for Stanford's offense to transition a little bit. You guys mentioned the pieces that are removed from the receiving core for Stanford. You know, they have to replace 63% of the catches, 67% of the receiving yards, 62% of the touchdowns um, when you lose Orsega Whiteside and Irwin and Caden Smith. But what I'm hearing is the ball could come out a little quicker this year for Stanford's offense because the style of receiver is a little bit different. It's more run after the catch type guys. And so I think if it's 
an extension of the run game. That's a positive. So for me, when I look at Northwestern's defense, much better against the run, not as good against the pass. It makes a lot of sense for Stanford to transition this way as well. Hey, it does. Hey, Todd, and you know, let me touch on this real quick. Patty Fisher's a stud. I mean, he's one of the better linebackers in college football. He's man to know that defense. I also like uh, Joe Gaziano uh, along the defensive front. So I'm 100% with Payne. It, it sets up well for Stanford because what I would think the weakness of this Northwestern defense is, it's the pass defense. And as was mentioned, you lose your best two players from the back end, uh, and you've got what you have come back in the front seven for Northwestern. There's no question that they're going to take their shots and try to attack this Northwestern defense outside and down the field. Uh, Dusty, when you look at Northwestern, and we'll get to what the Wildcats are going to do on the offensive side of the ball, Payne and I have had this discussion. You've clearly done games there in Evanston. You've spoken to Pat Fitzgerald. Can you shed a little light on why this team has historically been such a slow starter early on in the season, and yet they find their identity later in the year, despite having basically run the same offense and defensive packages ever since Pat Fitzgerald took over in Evanston? That's a great question. I wish I, wish I had a good answer, but I don't. I, you know, Losing to Duke, Akron, Last year, early in the season, that was a head-scratcher for me, especially you know when you're able to get a nice win at Purdue uh, to start. So I, I don't know. Um, you know I, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that's something Pat Fitzgerald has identified and is trying to remedy. But um, you know I, I, I don't know. I don't know if there is a good rationale or reason for the slow starts, uh, but clearly I think it's one that uh, Coach Fitzgerald – I had them against Nebraska last year, which was I think game five or game six – and we kind of talked about that, that stretch that they had where they struggled. They did play Michigan tough, but losing to Duke and Akron, uh, turnovers really cost them. Uh, so, I mean, he, he talked a lot about that with Clayton Thorson last year and taking care of the football, and he did a better job uh, later, especially as he was able to stay a little bit more healthy. So I think as much as anything, I'm sure one of the big messages to Hunter Johnson is, is taking care of the ball, is you know going on, going on the road, playing a team, like Stanford, the last thing that we can do to try to go to the farm and get a victory is turn the football over. So, uh, you know, I know you want me to talk more about overall uh, program, but as it relates to, to this team, uh, I think Hunter Johnson is, you're probably going to see him take a little bit off his plate and really lean on the running game and Isaiah Bauer. Well, you know, a quick follow-up there uh, for you, Dusty, having been around it and knowing Coach Speak probably, well, definitely better than me. Uh, when it comes to that, any reason why Northwestern has been so reluctant to officially name Hunter Johnson the starter and still kind of saying that, hey, look, T.J. Green's very much in the mix. I know he's a fifth-year senior. He's the son of a former NFL quarterback in Trent Green. But if Johnson was going to be that guy, shouldn't he be taking all the first-team reps to get this team ready for hostile territory? And I use that term loosely to go on the farm for week one and kick things off uh, in style. Yeah, but I think that's just the way of the world now, isn't it? I mean, we see coaches being more coy with quarterbacks now than ever. Um, you know, I think it's it, – to me, it's twofold. Uh, you always have to worry about transfers. Now, I, I get that T.J. Green, you know, he's a fifth-year senior, so I don't know how much you have to worry about him transferring, but I think it's also – coaches are paranoid, man. <laughs> coaches are paranoid, and they don't want to necessarily show their cards. They want to try to keep things close to the vest. They want to keep other coaches, opposing coaches, guessing – and, you know, it's like Oklahoma this week. They don't release a depth chart. Houston doesn't release a depth chart. I think sometimes the paranoia in the coaching world, uh, it, it's a little bit crazy. And I think that they feel that if they can keep as much information in-house away from their opponent, that's going to in some way give them a leg up. And I don't know the reality of that. Uh, I always think that if you have a quarterback in particular with 
completely different skill sets. Uh, maybe that can be uh, somewhat beneficial to, to force a, a defensive coordinator to scheme and game plan for two completely contrasting styles. But if you've got quarterbacks with like abilities, uh, I, I really don't see much of a tangible benefit of not naming a starter. I don't know how you guys feel, but I think Hunter Johnson's going to be the guy. I mean, Payne, I know you have uh, better contacts. I did as much as I could reaching out to some of my folks in the Chicagoland area, and they seemed as mums about anything that everyone believes Johnson is going to be the guy, but they just don't understand why Fitzgerald can't come out and openly say that. Yeah, it's been weird. You know, Fitzgerald's playing it close to the vest. And Dave Revson, uh, formerly of ESPN, now the Bing 10 Network, he came out last week, said Hunter Johnson is has way more upside. He's the better arm talent. But it's actually been TJ Green that's been more consistent. He's been steadier. He's shown better decision-making from what he's seen at Northwestern practice. He thinks both guys are going to play. Um, and to your point, Todd, you just hope whoever the starter is for this game, you know, valuable first-team reps aren't being taken away. Uh, you know, for Pat Fitzgerald is so smart. You, you, you absolutely want to give him the benefit of the doubt. My mind says, you know, he's thinking, hey, not a lot of film on either guy. Let's make Stanford prepare for two. Maybe that gives me a schematic advantage. If it is TJ Green, right, you know, as a junior, he played significant snaps in three games. He hosted Akron and Duke, um, and then he was on the road at Purdue. Those three defenses combined to average about a 75th ranking in overall defensive efficiency. Green was just 20 for 36 in those games, produced an 89 passer rating. So interesting here. I think obviously if it's Hunter Johnson, we know the talents there, former five-star recruit. The one thing that I have been reading kind of between the lines is the OC, Mick McCall. He's hinted that Johnson doesn't quite know the playbook as well as Green, right? He doesn't know where the ball needs to go every single time. So for me, like like this side of the ball, it's kind of tough to diagnose, you know, with this uncertainty at quarterback. But bottom line, this offense, I think, needs to step up because the last four seasons... It's this Northwestern offense um, that's really held this team back a little bit. Um, Their average rank the last four seasons is just barely inside the top 90 in efficiency. The defense is actually top 25 on average over that that same time period. So when you look at Northwestern, there's a reason as a whole they were outgained by 0.8 yards per play last season. It's because the offense just isn't doing their part. See a lot of pressure. I mean, it's, they last in the Big Ten in sacks allowed last year, and they lose yep. three starters. So, I mean, whether it's it's Johnson or it's Green, they're going to have to do a better job protecting, which I don't like this matchup for them from that standpoint. Stanford's got pretty much their entire defensive line back. When you look at Michael Williams, Thomas Booker, Javon Swan, who I think is an underrated player, that nucleus combined for 98 tackles and eight sacks. And uh, best believe that they're going to be doing everything that they can to heat up whichever quarterback's going to be out there really uh, you know, making one of their first legitimate uh, Power Five road starts. So, uh, if if that Northwestern offensive line isn't improved this year, that's going to continue to be problematic for this offense. One thing I will say, gentlemen, before we move on uh, with to our next game, you look at Northwestern and whatever Pat Fitzgerald has done here, he's gotten his team to perform well above Vegas expectations when he goes out on the road. Northwestern since 2009, 24-9 against the spread as a road underdog. They're 11-1 against the spread in that role over their last 12 game, and they've covered eight straight. They've gone 6-2 and two straight up the last eight times they've been a road underdog. The last loss against the spread occurring against Michigan in 2015. So clearly a role the Wildcats have felt comfortable in and have exceeded expectations. So it should be a very interesting game as we learned quite a bit about both of these teams. 
On to Jacksonville, a game that we're operating under the assumption it will be played. Tropical Storm Dorian may have other plans for Boise State's trek across the country to take on Florida State, where the Seminoles are a four and a half point favorite total on this game, 51 and a half. All sorts of speculation that, hey, it might not be safe conditions for the fans to get out of there, so we'll keep you apprised of this. But Payne, when you look at Florida State, we know last year was disappointing, a 5-7 and seven campaign. They saw things kind of go awry as far as postseason aspirations. But what's the buzz in Tallahassee this year? And can Florida State start things off with a bang? When you look at that schedule, very realistic chance to go 5-0 and oh if they beat Boise State in their opener. Certainly, optimism is much better this season. Um you know, we saw this coming, right? Jimbo's last year there, they barely snuck into a bowl game. They had to reschedule. I believe it was Monroe. Um, so this has kind of been lingering for a long time. The defense was outstanding last year for the circumstances, but it's all about the offense, right? I think that's where the improvement needs to come from. I know the hope for Florida State fans is they see Kendall Bryles improve this offense at the same rate as his last two stops. In my mind, that's probably not realistic, right? Because the offensive line just isn't going to be good enough. But you look at Bryles, he inherited the 69th most efficient offense at FAU within one season, got them the 30th. Same thing at Houston, from 43rd to 20th in efficiency in just one season. Again, I don't see a scenario where where Bryles takes FSU from 97th inside the top 50. Talent-wise, obviously, at running back, you have Akers and LeBorn. They're top-notch. You have Terry at receiver with Matthews and Helton. No doubt the weapons are a top 50 caliber type offense, but the O-line I think is still in trouble. We saw last year, 33% of the time FSU snapped the ball on the offensive side, it graded successful. Um, New O-line coach Randy Clements, his goal, and just talking to some people there, is going from the worst Power 5 offensive line to a unit that's bad to below average. I think if that happens, FSU will have some success, um, and that's the biggest thing for Florida State this year. I'm telling you, Payne, we're missing an opportunity. The t-shirts for Bet the Board, just be below average. It seems to be our (laughs) calling card for everything we're assessing this season for teams just trying to build things up a bit. Dusty, when it comes to Boise as a program, you've called plenty of Mountain West games uh, over the years. You've been around them. What do they do so effectively under Coach Harsin, and can it translate on the road in a hot, humid, sticky environment with a true freshman at quarterback, down a starting running back in Alex Madison who goes on to the Minnesota Vikings, and losing your top two pass catchers from a season ago? Yeah, you know, I think the thing that Brian Harsin does, they're balanced, right? They've got a nice balance. Last year was Alex Madison. Brett Rippon, uh, good compliments of uh, uh, being able to run the football as well as throw it. They take care of the football, too. They don't beat themselves, and they consistently play really good defense. So that's kind of the, the recipe for success. I tell you, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on Florida State this year. I was down on them last year. I love the hire of Kendall Bryles. I know he doesn't have a magic wand, but I, I do like the style of offense that he runs, and the proof is in the pudding. Everywhere he goes, he has success. Um, I would have to think after that embarrassment of a year last year, especially up from the offensive line, I think that's going to be an improved unit. And the thing I like about this offense schematically, and and don't get it twisted. Everybody thinks when you think of Art Bryles, Baylor offense, it's throw it down the field. Well, they spread the field, right? Those receivers are going to be outside the numbers to make you cover the entire width of the field, but they really just want to spread you out to run the football down your throat. I mean, it's a power running game. Go look at the years that they've had their most success uh, in this offense and go across the country. Teams that run this offense, they run the football and it's power football between the tackles. So 
for an offensive line that struggled, I'd be chopping at the bit to get inside this offense because it sets itself up for light boxes, uh, for defenses to have to spread out, to have to stretch, which enables you to get the numbers in your favor. And if it doesn't, you throw it outside the talented athletes and you allow them to make one guy miss and all of a sudden you got a big play. Uh, that's kind of the proof in the pudding. So um, as, I, as I look at this Boise State defense, one thing that concerns me, Andy Avalos, it was a huge hire for me that Oregon got him. I think he's an outstanding defensive coordinator. He's done a great job there uh, at Boise State. He's gone now. They got several guys back. I love Curtis Weaver, a really good pass rusher, one of the better defensive players in the Group of Five Conference. Also safety, DeAndre Pierce, son of Antonio Pierce. He will come up and flat out hit you. So they still have players that I don't think they're going to be awful, but I do think they have a chance at taking a slight step back defensively because Andy Avalos has had his fingerprints all over this defense. That will no longer be there. So I like that matchup for Kendall Bryles in this particular spot. they got to get Cam Akers going. And you have to think that James Blackman is going to be better this year than he was when he was thrust into that spot as a true freshman. We also got a chance to see him last year. Pretty sure it was against NC State, and he had a pretty nice game. He actually he actually played pretty well for the Seminoles. So I think this is a year where the offense is better. But where I really see Florida State thriving, it's on the defensive side. I mean, 16 of their top 20 tacklers are backs. I'm sure Payne knows. They've got talent. They've got speed. They didn't play up to par last year. Uh, better, Much better than the offense. But I still think that defense can be even better. And I think they will be in this game, especially when they're facing a true freshman quarterback and hate Bachmeyer. That's that's a bad place to be against a team that's got that much more talent than you in a neutral site for a true freshman. So uh, I don't know. I don't want to overdo it here, but as down as I was on the Seminoles last year, I'm pretty bullish on the Noles this year, especially in this opening matchup. I don't know if Payne, I don't know if we can have that. If Dusty's drinking Florida State Kool-Aid here and I got to listen to you every single week, you guys just might host the podcast and I might take Wednesday mornings off. Hey, not a bad idea. And and certainly the market agrees with Dusty's sentiments. This was a line that was Florida State minus three and a half just a few short weeks ago. We're now up to minus six at some of the sharper shops in the market. So when we look at some of the matchups, and I know Dusty hit on a pain, but wanted your take as well. Clearly, James Blackman last year, you know, it was by design to a certain extent, plays four games. They use the redshirt rule to try and keep some eligibility there. And I found it interesting reading some quotes from Willie Taggart where he goes, we evaluated the quarterback position the entire training camp from a statistical standpoint, but also just getting our guys to play the entire offense to play consistently around it. And then just getting a good feel for who has this football team. And I think James, when it comes to that part of it, James has the football team. What have you heard about Blackman's command of the offense and what people believe he can accomplish as the anointed starting quarterback with Alex Hornibrook clearly defined as a number two behind him? Listen, it's it's a little different system this year with Bryles taking over. It's a little bit of the concepts that Taggart wants to employ last year. It, it wasn't quite there. There's a reason why the offensive coordinator left. There was differing views on who should have been the starting quarterback. In a down year like that, it should have been Blackman's job, not Francois, a guy who we know wasn't a team leader, not a team guy. Uh, Even Lane Kiffin in FAU said, no thanks. Um, So not the kind of guy you want leading your team. I think the biggest matchup here on this side of the ball is that offensive line. And I know Boise's 
changing its its defensive coordinator, but they do return nine guys that started nine games. So the biggest thing here is when you look at Boise's defense, they like to penetrate the gaps. They were 27th in stuff rate. That was FSU's weakness a year ago. A lot of negative plays that were difficult for the offense to overcome. Um, Boise's also very good. They were eighth in sack rate. They returned some, some key guys on that defensive line. So Florida State's going to have to be able to pass protect uh, with their tackles. And if they can, I think that's a big benefit. The other thing Bryles wants to do offensively is get rid of the ball a little bit quicker. We saw a lot of bubble screens last year from Florida State because defenses were cheating deep, didn't want Terry to beat them. And Florida State didn't have the kind of receivers that wanted to block. In comes Ron Dugans as the wide receivers coach. He wants these guys to block a little bit better. I think we see more success out of the bubble screen game, especially if defenses want to continue to cheat deep uh, on tomorrow and Terry. Hey, one Ron match Dugans, about no one relation to Jimmy Dugans uh, from <laughs> League of Avoid Rome. the clap, Jimmy Dugan. Yeah, That's I mean, right. we can offer. Uh, There's no crying in baseball. Like. Come on, guys. <laughs> You're not a what Ron match? Dugans guy. I mean, him and Peter Warwick were were the men there at Florida State. I got no problem with him. I just wanted to get in a movie reference here in the first show. That's <laughs> sorry. I saw it. I saw I a window. It. I saw an opportunity. I took it. It's it's a perfect reference. Every time I take a a, a monster leak, I always tell Todd that I I uh, eclipsed Dugan's record there. Yeah, it hey, also concerns me. Dusty about Payne's extracurricular behavior when we're not recording podcasts, but that may no be a discussion for a completely different episode. Hey, I'll give you I'll give you something that, that I think needs to skew the other way for Florida State. It, problematic of me being so bullish on the nose. Third downs, guys. Last year, the, the Boise owned third downs. Number two in the country and third down conversions offensively. 11 and third down defense. You guys know as well as I do, when you win third down, you're going to win a lot of football games. You're extending drives and you're getting your defense off the field. Florida State, 126 out of 129 third down offense. That's an area that Bryles and this offense has to improve upon or it's going to be a long season. So third down, going to be a big key in this opener. Payne, I know you have a bunch of nuggets there. Uh, you have an innate understanding of Florida State football and what's how things are working throughout the program. Anything else uh, that you wanted to touch on for this game before we head to, I guess, the biggest game of the day in Auburn, Oregon? No, I think Dusty hit on that in the best way that we've learned, right, over time to be more effective on third down is to put yourself in position to be effective on third down, and that's coming out and not losing yards on first and second. If you can be successful on first down, which is picking up five yards or more, and you can be successful on second down, um, it it makes it a lot easier in third down. So the negative plays, that's the one thing that you're going to have to watch in this game. Boise State is going to have a shot. It's because their defense controls the trenches on that side of the ball. Should be a great game. We can only hope that Mother Nature allows it to be played on Saturday. Don't want a scenario where we're talking about this game needing to go in a bye week or somewhere else on the schedule. That is why this total is coming down, by the way. It was 54.5 yesterday, down to 51. A lot of guys were focusing on the first half at 27. It was an underplay to begin with, even with the expectation that Bryles is going to run a little faster offense. But the weather, Tropical uh, Storm Doreen, which could be turn into a hurricane coming up the east coast of Florida, it really had sharp betters kind of uh, hit that total a little bit yesterday. Hey, well, hey, I know I touched it. Real oh, quick. Go ahead, Dustin. I, I got to ask this question. I think it's important. You know, it's only been one year. But, again, when you're the first coach in 36 years not to make a bowl, that's not the way you want to start your tenure at a place like Florida State. If they don't win this game, if they lose to Boise State, I mean, 
What's that fan? I mean, it, does Willie Taggart, I mean, does he have the potential of losing his job this year if things go awry? I got to win in seven, if not eight games this year. So I don't think that's going to be the case. But if this thing starts sloppy and they go out and they lose like like it looked like against Virginia Tech last year, an average Virginia Tech team, I mean, how much heat is he going to start getting down there in Tallahassee? It's going to be it's going to be a lot. Now, there's some other circumstances that I think have attributed to this. Right. And, and I know, you know, some of the guys on Jimbo's staff, but the reality is he left this program in shambles. Uh, it was a lot worse than Willie Taggart anticipated. I know he overpromised um, and underdelivered, So that isn't a good vibe there. But as I alluded to, even Jimbo's last season there, they were going to miss a bowl game if they didn't reschedule Monroe. So this had kind of already been happening. Um, you couldn't boot guys off the team because the APR was already so low, you would have became ineligible. So Taggart's dealing with a lot of Jimbo's guys that weren't made to go to class, that didn't have to lift, right? It was one of the worst, worst teams in the country in terms of working out and getting in the weight room. That's changed a little bit. The vibe is different here. Um, and quite frankly, FSU doesn't have the money to buy him out right now. So I think he is here at least another year. I do think they make a bowl game this season. The schedule sets up for it. But I can tell you right now, 2020, and this is massive for Willie Taggart, he not only has to have a winning season, I think he needs to get to eight wins. He needs to get to nine wins because right now as it stands, despite all the turmoil going on here, Willie Taggart has the eighth best recruiting class in the country, the best in the state of Florida. There's a five-star prospect, the number one defensive player in the country is choosing between Alabama and Florida State. And his decision is going to be based on if Florida State looks like they've progressed this year, which is the big question for a lot of recruits in that 2020 class. So this season is massive for Willie Taggart. If you can get to eight or nine wins, you're going to land even more guys that are contemplating coming here. Um, and that'll be a big way to resurrect this program. Awfully interesting program to keep tabs on. Things shape up relatively well. The only surefire loss on Florida State's schedule looks to be Clemson, where they'll be about a four-touchdown underdog. And, of course, the regular season at finale. At the Swamp's going to be tough. Yeah, at Florida, that's what I was going to say. I mean, another game that on paper right now doesn't look all that good. But, hey, things can change, and you never know what will happen, you know, three-plus months from now. What we do know is the biggest game of the weekend will take place in Arlington, Texas, where it's Oregon against Auburn, and it's Auburn a three-and-a-half-point favorite in this game. Total 55-and-a-half, a rematch of the 2010 National Championship game, a 22-19 win for Auburn. And, Dusty, we'll start with you on this particular contest. You look at Auburn, they elect to go the route of a true freshman the first time in the modern era. They've done so at this program since 1946. If you're Oregon and you're in that film room and everything else as a veteran defensive player how are you looking at some of the unknowns that Bo Nix is going to throw at you I'm licking my chops uh, I'm also licking my chops because I'm watching that Auburn offensive line from last year that was subpar um, and like I mentioned Andy Avalos enter him he's an aggressive coach you, you heard um, Payne talk about what Boise State does uh, they are not afraid to blitz they're an up the field gap defense they want to penetrate they want to play in the backfield Expect Oregon to want to do the same. I can't wait to see this true freshman, Kayvon Thibodeau, the number one overall recruit in the country. Uh, what a win that was for Mario Cristobal to get him out of California. I expect he has an instant impact. Uh, so I got to think that he's pretty primed and excited uh, to take on another true freshman across the way uh, and, and see if he can't uh, be the, you know, the guy that we're talking about more so than even Bo Nix. I think Troy Dye is an outstanding linebacker that they have. And, you know, I just – I think that, you know, this, this sets up pretty well. Now, what will be intriguing is Gus Malzahn's going back to calling the plays. We saw what he did in the bowl game 
against Purdue. I think they hung 49 against them in the first half. Uh, biggest thing for me, what Auburn has to do, they had to get back to being able to run the football. They couldn't run the football last year. And it starts with the offensive line, but I think also, uh, you know, there's a little bit of element that Jared Stidham, as much as you might like him as a passer, he didn't really fit exactly what Gus Malzahn wanted to do. I just, I never bought into Jared Stidham uh, as, as a great uh, runner of Gus Malzahn's offense. Uh, Bo Nix, obviously, he, he's, a, he's an Alabama prodigy. Dad played there at, at, uh, at Auburn and, you know, won two state championships playing for his dad. He was Mr. Alabama, a uh, guy that can throw it. I don't want to say he's some great runner, uh, but he is a capable runner. And I think as long as you're a capable runner and you can make a defense honor that, that's going to open things up on the front side. It's got to be a big year this year for uh, for Whitlow, the running back. I thought at times last year he looked good, powerful, downhill. Uh, I, I liked him. But the question is, is that offensive line improved? They returned a bunch of those guys, which can be good or can be bad. How improved is that group? I think ultimately is going to tell the story of how good Bo Nix and this offense is overall. But I think it sets up pretty well for an Oregon defense. It's got seven guys coming back. And as I mentioned, the number one overall recruit in all of high school football, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, going to make his debut. Uh, Dusty, I appreciate you bringing up that Auburn-Purdue bowl game. Uh, I'm not going to cry bad beat, but I think that was the fastest I've lost a football game all of 2018. So they put me out of my misery pretty quickly when Auburn electing to actually look like a fully competent and functioning offense. And while Payne, Dusty mentioned it, Auburn third down conversion rate less than 37% last season was the lowest of Gus Malzahn's tenure. He alluded to the fact that Jared Stidham probably wasn't the prototypical fit for what Gus wants to do. But how do you see this Auburn offense electing to go in that direction with some questions at the running back spot? Receiver-wise, we're going to wait on the status of Anthony Schwartz, who appears to be a game-time decision, the burner in their receiving core, in terms of how you see Auburn's offense matching up against this Ducks defense. Listen, uh, Dusty knocked that out of the park. This side of the ball, he hit perfectly. You know, Gus Malzahn is is taking back those play calling duties, and it was something he did. Um, and we mentioned on the SEC podcast, but it was something he did for the bowl game. And in the first half, <laughs> Auburn averaged eleven point eight yards per play. They had four explosive plays, fifty six on the board. It was bananas. And I can tell you, Gus is feeling extremely confident about this offense, even with a freshman quarterback in Bo Nix, because, you know, I think when you look at Stidham, he was great, but he wasn't that dual threat quarterback that I think Nix is. And I think that's going to really improve uh, where this weakness was for Auburn's offense last year, 76th in rushing efficiency. Uh, They weren't able to establish the ground game very often, 88th in adjusted yards per rush attempt. It led to a poor success rate. When you think about all these Gus Malzahn offenses and when they've been their very best, it's with guys like Cam. It's with guys like Nick Marshall. I think they have that element again now with Bo Nix. Oregon's defense, listen, it comes down to coaching, right? I, I think that, you know, when you have Cristobal and Levitt, who were bickering a little bit last year, it was an underachieving defense. Dusty mentioned Kayvon Thibodeau. He's a monster. He ended up deciding to stay at Oregon instead of following Taggart to Florida State. Um, Andy Evelos, the new D.C. I like what he's done. I like his style, but this isn't the Mountain West, right? With better players than the competition at every position in the Mountain West, Boise State finished 42nd, 27th, and 42nd in defensive efficiency in those three years. This is a little bit different, I think. Um, the key, obviously, getting pressure on Bo Nix, make him uncomfortable, find out if the moment's too big for a freshman. Um, 
unfortunately, like when I look at this and I looked at this matchup, I'm not sure that's going to be the case, right? You do bring in Thibodeau, but Oregon was 83rd in sack rate last season. Um, you look at the Oregon, uh, the Auburn offensive line. I know Dusty mentioned it from what I'm hearing drastically improved and they go from 114th and starting experience along the O-line to 12th coming into this season. O-line coach has been raving about it. Gus Malzahn says it's the most improved unit on the entire team. So let's see if that comes to fruition here. All right. The uh, matchup, I think, and that makes a ton of sense, Payne. I mean, trying to figure out what this offense is going to be doing, knowing that Gus has been asked repeatedly throughout this offseason, hey, are you going to be conservative in, a, in approach with a young quarterback? And he's kind of sidestepped those questions, said, hey, look, I wouldn't, paraphrasing, of course, wouldn't have put him out there if I didn't think he was capable of performing at this stage. And we talked about how daunting Auburn's schedule will be, especially within the league. But the matchup I think any college football fan should want to watch here, it won't be the sexy skill position talent matched up against the defensive backfield or even the quarterback play. And we'll get to Justin Herbert in just a moment. But Dusty, we look at this Oregon offensive line, arguably the front runner for the Joe Moore Award with Shane Lemieux, Calvin Throckmorton, and Panay Sewell, all projected to be pretty high draft picks at the next level against the strength of this Auburn football team, which is their defensive line. And when you look at Auburn, their biggest score was re-recruiting Derek Brown. Payne mentioned what Clemson had to do a season ago to keep some of their big players in-house. But Derek Brown, Big Cat Brian, Marlon Davidson, and Nick Coe on the depth chart coming out as a linebacker. How do you see that matchup playing out, and can Oregon win the Battle of the Trenches uh, against Auburn, an area where they struggled immensely against Michigan State in the bowl game? It's big man porn, dude. This gets me so excited. I mean, there are a few (laughs) Matt. This is the matchup of week one. I mean, I just get your popcorn ready, ladies and gentlemen. If you like real football, watch the trenches this weekend, Saturday night, Oregon, Auburn. Uh, I love this Auburn defensive line. If it's not Utah, it's Auburn. To me, those are the two best defensive lines in all of college football, which quite frankly, I think it's interesting considering Oregon opens with Auburn, and if they run the table, they might be playing Utah in a Pac-12 championship. So that offensive line is going to really need to come in handy. Um, you know, you mentioned it. I mean, this is a defense last year that created six uh, sack fumbles, uh, 14 interceptions at 38 sacks. I think Derek Brown's probably the most dominant defensive tackle in college football this year. Nick Coe's a beast coming off the edge, as is Marlon Davis. So I, I really like this Auburn defensive front. But I, like you said, I also like this Oregon offensive line. So, I mean, it's good on good. Roll your sleeves up, get ready, and let's find out exactly what's what. But I will say kind of for me, the trump card, you've got a veteran quarterback in Justin Herbert who, you know, let's be honest, last year has been inconsistent, kind of took a step back the latter half of the year, came out like game busters. I thought he played really well, especially with that Stanford game when he started just almost flawless until they just gave that game away. Uh, but to me, and again, at Pac-12 Media, they sat with Justin Herbert, actually did a little radio bit with them, had a chance to spend some time with them. I was impressed with him. I think that he's going to be a man on a mission. I think that he's going to have a big season. And the biggest thing for me, like one of my biggest takeaways of the Oregon, is I think that the mindset has shifted. Mario Cristobal, and I didn't give him enough credit when they hired him, but Mario Cristobal, being an offensive line coach, a guy who preaches toughness, physicality, having been on Nick Saban's staff. He took his coaching staff to Tuscaloosa this offseason. He took them to Athens, Georgia. He showed them what it takes to win a national championship in college football. That's a trickle-down effect all the way. His coaches saw it. They understand it. He's preaching it. And I think his players are buying in. He had his damn sleeves rolled up, walking around like he's ready to arm wrestle anybody who wanted to go at him. I mean, he's already on edge at Pac-12 Media Days. And if his team carries that over – I think they're going to be a pretty tough team to deal with this season. I, I'm intrigued by this matchup. 
Uh, but I just, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, as from a matchup standpoint, but for me, kind of the quarterback, a veteran quarterback who I think has a chance to be one of the better quarterbacks in the country against a true freshman quarterback, that's kind of the trump card in my opinion. I, I, I would not be afraid uh, to take a flyer on the, on the dog here to win this game outright. You know what, Payne? We we talked about Justin Herbert and kind of what the ex, what we thought he was going to be able to produce this season, Eugene, on the preseason podcast. One of the big issues that Oregon's been plagued with all campus, some struggles uh, in terms of keeping wide receivers healthy. It looks like Jawan Johnson's supposedly going to be a full go, but he missed some time. Micah Pittman, J.R. Waters, Brendan Schooler, Lance Wilhoit, the list goes on and on. When you look at Justin Herbert and try and figure out how he's going to match up against the defense with some questionable weapons out there, how does that factor into some of your handicapping when you look at the way this number has kind of moved where we've seen some money come in on Auburn taking it off the three? It's a great question, and it's kind of difficult to assess that. And listen, it's just it's a lot of hype coming in with Justin Herbert. Um, you got the big offensive line. They only allowed a 5% sack rate last season. Then they go out and land the number one Juco lineman to add to the mix. So you know, everything on paper looks like this should be an elite Ducks offense. Uh, you mentioned the injury bug. It, it hit the wide receiver group, um, and that's going to be difficult in a matchup like this because how you have to beat Auburn is with the explosive pass. Part of this is style, too. Like, I'm not huge uh, on Marcus Arroyo. Like, it, he just hasn't shown an ability to be creative. Um, he's been extremely predictable with his play calling. Um, I think part of that is probably, you know, a directive from Mario Cristobal who wants to to run on early downs as a former O-lineman himself. But you look at Oregon's offense last year, fifth worst in the entire country bypassing third downs. So they weren't picking up first downs on first or second down very often. You have, you know, what's going to be probably the second quarterback taken in the NFL draft. You got to trust him enough to throw on early downs because I think that's what's needed in a game like this. I don't think you can consistently punk Auburn in the trenches, you know. Um, When you look at Auburn's defense, the big thing here, Kevin Steele moving down from the press box to the sidelines for the first time in three seasons. You can just tell the Auburn staff is all in this year. They know the seat is hot. Um, Every big-time contributor returns on that defensive line. So absolutely loaded up front. The biggest thing, again, if they can limit explosive plays, and I think they can if Marcus Arroyo calls the same games he did last year and the the Ducks uh, injuries have hit the wide receiver group because Auburn was 97th a season ago um, in explosive play defense. That's the only spot where you can really hurt them in my mind because they're top 20 in both rushing and passing efficiency, 14th in success rate. Um, For me... I, I just don't know if schematically Oregon's going to be there. And and this is just, we talked about this on the Pac-12 podcast. It's a bottom line thing for me. It's a huge game for Mario Cristobal. It's a huge game for Marcus Arroyo. We've seen this Oregon team away from Eugene. Last 16 trips, they've been outscored by 109 points. They've lost 12 games. I don't love this Ducks coaching staff. It's time for them to kind of show up here for once. Definitely a level of familiarity between head coach Mario Cristobal and Auburn defensive coordinator Kevin Steele. Both were on the same staff at Alabama back in 2013 and 2014. So we'll see uh, whose level of familiarity and know-how can trump one another uh, in this particular spot. And if Oregon were to pull off the outright win here, Dusty, it would be the first time they've beaten a ranked team to start a season since way back in 2001 when they knocked off the Wisconsin Badgers. Game, though, and Dusty, this is, this is a big game for the Pac-12. Right, I mean, they need this game. 
Uh, yep. It felt like last year when Washington, in a similar setting, couldn't take down Auburn in a game that I thought the second half they outplayed them. Um, it it kind of felt like the Pac-12 sealed its fate already. I don't want to say that's 100% the case this year. I don't want to completely bury Washington, and especially I'm not ready to bury Utah. But this would not be a good sign for the Pac-12 once again if this Oregon team that a lot of people, myself included, think has a chance to have a pretty special season if they go down to an Auburn team. Let's face it, uh, I don't know if they're much better than third in their own division in that SEC West. So a huge game for, as you mentioned, Mario Cristobal, Oregon, but also a huge game for the Pac-12 as a whole. Yeah, definitely wouldn't mind a college football landscape that had the Pac-12 relevant uh, if, once the calendar left September and headed to October, something that we actually haven't seen for the last couple of years. Utah, we'll talk about them plenty going forward. I know they have a couple landmines in their schedule early on, including a road date at USC in late September. When we get to Sunday, a program, Dusty, that you know all too well, the Oklahoma Sooners find themselves as 23-point favorites with a total of 82.5 as they welcome in the Houston Cougars, now led by Dana Holgerson, who made the move from West Virginia to Houston. Uh, when we look at the quarterbacks in this game, I think De'Aaron King, maybe a guy that the casual college football fan doesn't know all about as an electrical dual threat quarterback that can make plays both with his arm and his legs. But I think the biggest question that all of us have and hoping Dusty, you can shed some light on it is will Jalen Hurts pick up where Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield left off before and be the heir apparent to leading Lincoln Riley's offense in 2019? Big shoes to fill, isn't it? We're talking about two of the most efficient seasons, actually the two most efficient seasons that we've ever seen in college football. Baker Mayfield set that mark when he won the Heisman two years ago, only to be trumped by both Tua and Kyler Murray, who ultimately won it this past season. So uh, that's a tall order. But, yeah, I think he's going to be successful. Do I think he's going to put up the same numbers that those guys did? I don't know. I think it'll look a little bit different. I don't think that Lincoln Riley gets away from who he is. But the thing that I really um, appreciated, if you watch Lincoln Riley, he is willing to adapt to his personnel, right? He is willing uh, to to change kind of what he does a little bit, if need be. So – I think that's that's an area for me that uh, I'm excited to see exactly what it looks like. But I think you'd be crazy not to think that Jalen Hurts, uh, who is a damn good runner, isn't going to utilize that skill set. I also think, having seen him in, in spring practice and this fall camp, he throws it better than people give him credit for. I think Danny Eno should get some credit for improving his throwing motion and improving him as a passer last season kind of behind the scenes. And I think that that kind of came to fruition when he was able to step in against Georgia. Uh, and and pull off that huge win to win an SEC championship. So, uh, yeah, I do think Jalen Hurts is going to have success. Is he going to pick up right where Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield left off? I'm not so sure. And the big reason why, he got four new offensive linemen up front. I mean, that, that to me, everybody was focused on Jalen Hurts. I don't think that's the area of concern, if there is one, for Lincoln Riley's offense. It's the offensive line. You had there, it's a Joe Moore award-winning offensive line from a year ago. Four guys get drafted uh, in, the, in the NFL draft, and so they got a lot of replacement. Creed Humphrey's an outstanding center, freshman All-American, probably one of the better freshmen or one of the better centers in all of college football. Uh, but they got to put some new pieces in there. Now, Bill Bedenboe is one of the best offensive linemen in the country. You're not going to find many better at the NFL or college level. He actually passed on some NFL jobs to State Oklahoma this season so he's recruited well he's a good developer but four brand new guys to me that's a bit more worrisome than the quarterback itself and you know ball is going to come out quick to help those guys and I think also young offensive line 
you know what they like to do? They like to put their hand in the ground and just try to road grade. These are big physical guys, and I think that early on in the season especially, look for Lincoln Riley and this team to lean on their running game. They've got a talented running back crew uh, with Kennedy Brooks, Trey Sermon, uh, and, and quite a few other guys, truth be told. And I think Jalen Hurts is going to be a real weapon. People don't realize this, but they had almost 3,000-yard rushers last year. Kennedy Brooks goes for over 1,000. Kyler Murray goes for over 1,000. And Trey Sermon was about 45 yards short. So I know when you think of Lincoln Riley, you think air raid. He's adapted. He understands that you've got to be able to run the football. And I think that they lean on that, especially early, until this offense gets some continuity, round into shape, and they're able to protect and give Jalen Hurts that extra time. Uh, I expect this Sooners rushing attack to be pretty potent uh, right out of the chute. You know, Payne, Dusty talks about all the changes on the Sooners offensive line. We knew last year, hey, that was going to be the strength of this football team coming in. We had an inkling of what Kyler Murray could do. I don't think any of us anticipated him putting together the kind of electric season he was able to put forth. But when we look at Dana Holgerson leaving a Power 5 program like West Virginia to take a job at Houston, knowing the kind of talent he has, not only a quarterback in De'Ara King, but the top three running backs return. King, of course, factors in as one of the three there. Five of the top six receivers highlighted by Marquez Stevenson, and a 101 career starts on the offensive line despite losing a starting center and left guard. Hey, you've been an Alex Grinch fan. We talked about him extensively and we previewed Oklahoma. He says he just wants to take this defense up a notch. He wants him to force two turnovers a game. How do you see Houston's offense and their capability to put up points to cover this number with a total that we've seen climb from 80 to 82 and a half? So in terms of the covering, it's not a position for me, but at 24 and a half, uh, some sharp money on Houston. And, and you kind of alluded to this. Their offense, it's, it's stocked like a trout pond. Um, but I think it could look a little different this year, right? You know, the pace at which Houston operated last year, second fastest in the country. I'm not sure Dana Holgerson keeps that approach. You look at his West Virginia teams, they slowed down each of the final four years there. Last year, 48th in adjusted pace. And, you know, we're hearing about Holgerson, you know, talking, not running, Derek King is much on designs this year. And he's emphasizing that King manages the game better by allowing, you know, other guys to work more instead of him constantly using his feet. Uh, route combinations, I think, are going to be different for the wideouts this year with Bryles uh, gone. So I think there there are going to be some, some changes to the Houston's offense. On paper, right, the matchup looks like this is a complete mismatch, right? You, you just have this Houston offense that's dynamic. They're versatile. They can run and pass. They can hit you with big plays. They were fourth in explosiveness a season ago. Um, you know, they're good in situational football. They were fourth in uh, points per opportunity. So when they got into the green zone, they converted. But you're right. I love Alex Grinch, and I, I love what he's building We've talked about how he inherited Washington State's defense. That was 97th in efficiency. Within three years, improvement each year. Wazoo finishes 30th in defensive efficiency his final year there. Everything is about speed for Alex Grinch's defense. You have some guys this offseason, they've shed 30 and 40 pounds along the defensive line. So um, his system is about getting pressure on the quarterback, creating negative plays, um, forcing offenses into bad decisions, getting the ball back quickly for the offense. So you hit this, right? Grinch came out. I saw the article. He says two takeaways per game, if not inexcusable. So everything is about turning it over to get it back to Lincoln Riley's high-powered offense. The one thing we touched on just briefly um, with the Big 12 podcast, and, and Grinch has hit on it again. He keeps saying the X's and O's portion is checkers 
that 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 part's checkers to improving Oklahoma's defense. He says the chess part is getting all his guys to buy in, get guys that didn't believe last year to buy into what he's selling. And so for me, when you have multiple big men going from 320 to 280, it tells me they believe. So the defensive side of the ball, just a different attitude. Um, If we can see that year one um, level of increased production, about 20%, which we saw at Wazoo, that maybe has Oklahoma's defense start flirting with the top 65. I know the Caleb Kelly injury hurts Then the last week. Uh, about two weeks ago, you had the starting corner, Trey Norwood. He's out for the season, suffered a knee injury. So those are two massive losses. But the one reason why I'm really intrigued to see this matchup and why I think Alex Grinch can actually slow down Houston just enough, right? He's not going to shut him out, but just slow him down a little bit. I think Alex Grinch is holding the ace up the sleeve. Grinch is familiar with Dana Holgerson's system, and it's because Dana's, Dana Holgerson's system is actually Mike Leach's system. And Dana comes from Mike Leach's coaching tree, uh, spent eight years there with him at Texas Tech. Grinch just spent three years going against Mike Leach's offense every single day at practice. I think that's the ace up the sleeve for Oklahoma's defense. Dusty, I'll let you close on this because I know if we let Payne keep going, Alex Grinch, Matt Campbell are going to be on a Mount Rushmore for his man crushes going forward. I'm not sure I can yeah, handle it. Teammates, by week the in, way. week out throughout the you know, season. Were, those guys were teammates at Mount Union. Won, won a national championship together. Did you know that? Same defense. I didn't, but it makes sense Matt now, Campbell doesn't it? Campbell was a nose oh tackle, and Alex yeah. Grinch uh, was on the back end of that defense. Anyway, a little nugget for you. So, Alex so Grinch was, looks yoked, by the way. I saw a picture of him the other day. He's like, he's putting on some weight, too. He's I know him pretty up. well. If you want me to try to set up a, a mandate, I'm sure I can. I mean, you just let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, and, and as Todd knows, I got no problem paying. That's kind of like the gambler's yeah. rule. I pay for everything. Yeah, Payne, Payne not afraid to open up his wallet there, but I uh, did not know that. So, Payne, this year for the holidays, uh, Bet the Board listeners are more than willing. Uh, should they be so inclined to pick up any Mount Union apparel and to see you don the purple and black to make sure that you can properly represent your two man crushes? Uh, but real quick, Dusty, what have you heard about Oklahoma's defense uh, and what Alex Grinch has gotten these players to buy in? Because we know you're a little bit closer to the program than either yeah, of us. You know, uh, I, I, thought, uh, I thought Payne hit it out of the park there uh, because he's, he's spot on in everything he said. In truth, be told I had uh, I had three Washington State games while Grinch was the coordinator and I fell in love with him back then as a matter of fact I was saying on Oklahoma City Radio this might be the next defensive coordinator at Oklahoma a year and a half ago um, might have had a little tip uh, I had an idea that maybe Lincoln was, uh, <laughs> had his eye on him but I understand why and I studied his defense and I got to know him and in uh, and, and and what Payne said is exactly right the, the three areas that he focuses on is sacks tackles for loss, and turnovers. And he does that with pre-snap shifting and post-snap slanting. He really likes to disguise and create confusion amongst the offensive line. He's also a guy who's going to get up the line of scrimmage and press some wide receivers and challenge them. That's feast or famine. That could be problematic in some instances until they get the full personnel that they need. But, but the biggest thing for me, it's not even that. And I've talked to Alex extensively many times about this. It's about effort. An attitude. I mean, you know what? Because I, I, I am a firm believer that, I mean, don't get me wrong, scheme matters. Uh, but I think buy-in matters more. And are you willing to give max effort? Um, are you willing to do, you know, play as hard as you possibly can? And I would say that this defense has not done that. And I know that uh, just playing on edge, playing with attitude, had a chance to speak to this Oklahoma defense uh, earlier this fall camp. 
that's what he's preaching, and they are, they have bought in, uh, more so than I've seen in years there at Oklahoma. Now, what exactly does that translate to? I don't know. We're going to find out Sunday night. Uh, we'll start there, and they've got a tough task, and I think Houston's going to put up some points. I really do. Uh, but I'm buying what, uh, what Alex Grinch is selling, and more importantly, those players are buying it. They really are. It's a new voice. It's a new message. They also brought in Brian Odom, a young linebackers coach, Roy Manning, a young defensive backs coach. And I just think that there's a different buzz and a different energy around this Oklahoma defense right now, kind of similar to what Lincoln Riley has created on the offensive side. So I think it's going to take a couple of years to really see the fruits of Alex Grinch's labor, but this will be an improved defense year one. Uh, they've got a tall task right out of the chute. Uh, but the areas I look for to really see if this defense is improved, it, it's the negative plays. It is the turnovers. This is an Oklahoma defense, guys, that only created 28 sacks last year, 11 takeaways. 11 takeaways, okay, in 14 games. Think about that. They need to average, as you mentioned, two takeaways a game. If they can get Lincoln Riley extra possessions, look out, because that offense, again, even though they're rebuilding the offensive line, it's still going to be a juggernaut. So, uh, I, I co-sign just about everything uh, that Payne had to say, and, and I do think Alex Grinch is going to get this thing turned around at some point. Is it going to be opening night against Houston? I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, uh, but I do think at, throughout the course of this season, really into next season, as they continue to recruit at a high level, it's going to be a much, much improved defensive side of the ball. And if you're an Oklahoma Sooner fan, uh, you know that, that's going to be that's the missing ingredient to get them that eighth. Uh, and, and really highly anticipated national championship. Well, that's a Sunday night standalone game, gentlemen, with Houston going to Oklahoma. Monday night we will wrap up the holiday weekend with the Fighting Irish on the road uh, taking on the Louisville Cardinal. And Notre Dame, a massive favorite here, laying 20 on the highway. Total on the game, 55. And uh, I know we didn't preview Notre Dame. A lot of our loyal listeners had asked about it. Hey, are you guys going to break down Notre Dame? Are you going to do this? Well, we had eyes on this particular game. We were going to do a little bit of a season preview because I don't think Louisville is all that interesting yet. I do like the hire in Scott Satterfield. But Payne, when you look at this Louisville team who lost their final seven games a season ago by 18 points or more, what could go wrong did go wrong. You had players quitting. The culture was awful. In comes Satterfield from Appalachian State. He knows it's going to take a little while to turn it around. They just want to be competitive week in, week out. Notre Dame, of course, believes they can get back to the college football playoff. I don't think that's possible. But when you look at the Irish this season, uh, what does your outlook appear to be knowing their two toughest games are on the road at Georgia and at Notre Dame? You know, I'm an Ian Book guy, so it starts there for me. I, I think when you look at um, just the team in totality, I believe we have them entering this season power rated three points lower um, than what they ended last season. So there is a little bit of a drop-off. I do think offensively, um, we see maybe an uptick in the ground game. Because if you remember, every pro better last year, and I think everybody who you know was assessing Notre Dame, it was the offensive line. They had to replace those two first-round picks. They had to replace their O-line coach. And then just, you know, poof, year over year, we saw this massive regression despite the record spiking through the roof, right? But nearly two yards per rush attempt decline from 2017 to 2018. And then in that same time frame, Notre Dame went from fourth in rushing efficiency to 72nd, fifth in line yards to 106. And so, you know, I don't think Notre Dame's offensive line and their run game returns to the 2017 form, 
but I think it's going to be wildly better than last season. So I think there's hope there. And then, of course, you have, you know, my guy Ian Book. Like, we pounded the table for him last year. And thank God Notre Dame didn't screw the pooch and lose a couple of those close games, not starting him. But you just look, overall, the Fighting Irish offense increased its completion percentage by over 15% with Ian Book. Adjusted yards per pass attempt increased three and a half yards. Overall passer rating improved 41 points. So I just think when you're looking at Notre Dame this season, the offense is going to be better, could be a little bit more balanced. Um, You referenced this total. Sharp money has hit the under here. Dusty, when you look at Louisville, clearly going through a massive change in identity. I mean, I spoke to people close to the program, and they went out to define it as the worst defense that they've seen in school history. Uh, 122 in the country as far as total defense was concerned, 127 in scoring defense. Do you believe they brought in the right head coach, and how long does it take a coach when the previous guy and Bobby Petrino leaves the cupboard essentially bare. He's going to have to use Petrino's guy and Juwan Pass, who was named the starter, to build them back into that level of respectability. And maybe not a contender in the ACC where they were with Lamar Jackson, but a consistent bowl participant. Well, let me just say, I'll co-sign about the horrible defense. I'm sure, I don't know if you guys remember, I did the game at Clemson on ABC that was 77-16. to 16, Okay? I mean, we had Dabo getting touchdowns for his kids, for goodness sakes. I mean, it was it was a you-know-what show. And that I've never seen a team, and particularly a defense, quit the way that team quit. It was, it was embarrassing. It was bad. Uh, I do think Scott Satterfield is a good hire. Um, I think that he's going to bring a toughness and edginess that he had at Appalachian State that allowed them to, to really be a, a quality team for several years there. I just – it's just so hard to handicap this team for me. I think that they'll be improved. How much improved? I think it's hard to judge. I'm not blown away with what Jawan Puma pass. Uh, I thought he was was okay. Uh, they do have some big targets outside. They've got a lot of length outside. Seth Dawkins, Des Fitzpatrick, both guys are over six foot two. So there's big targets out there. Um, and I would imagine on a year like last year, defensively, a lot of jobs are going to be open. Right. I mean, I'm sure you get there as a coach and you basically say, go earn a position. So I think anytime you have that, you create some competition. That's always a good thing. I just I don't know, because as you mentioned, this program was in such dire straits. And I think we might have seen it a little bit sooner had it not been for Lamar Jackson. I think the biggest thing I learned last year, how much was Lamar Jackson masking? Right. How much was his just overall greatness and him being the best player on the field most days for a couple seasons for Bobby Petrino? How much did that cover up some of the real blemishes that were uncovered last season? So to me, this is a job that's going to take a couple of years for Scott Satterfield to get corrected. And I, there'll be a better team. There'll be a team that's more bought in this year. Uh, but to what extent? I, I think it remains to be seen. I'm not crazy about the Irish this year. And, I, and truth be told, I grew up a massive, massive Notre Dame fan. That was where my fandom was. I wanted to be Rudy. Hell, I cried in Rudy, guys. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, it was amazing. Uh, I wanted to win one for the Gipper. Uh, but as I look at this season, I see you guys mentioned that Georgia at Michigan. I think this Virginia game is going to be tough. I look at the two Bryces, Perkins and Hall, on each side of the football. I don't think that's an easy win against Bronco Mendenhall's guys. And no, I'm not crazy about USC when they catch them. They are coming off a bye. The other thing about Notre Dame's schedule this year, uh, have you guys noticed how many teams are coming off of buys when they play them? New Mexico, not that it's scary, off a of buy. Bowling Green, off a of buy. Uh, USC, off a of buy. Virginia Tech, 
at Duke, Navy, Boston College, all those teams coming off of buys. None of those games is Notre Dame coming off of buys. So there's going to be a lot of teams that are getting extra week of preparation against this fighting Irish team, though I think that they're still going to be a talented team. I think the schedule actually doesn't set up great for them, and they close at Stanford. So I actually think this could be a, a, a taking a step back type of year for Brian Kelly, three, if not maybe even a, dare I say, four-loss season for the Fighting Irish. Don't kill me, Notre Dame fans. I'm sorry. I'd love to see you do better. As I look at the schedule, though, uh, I just think that it could be problematic. But I don't think that's going to be the case this opener. I think it's all about the Irish against Louisville on Monday night. Dusty, they can't kill you. You told them you love Rudy. That's how you easily diffuse the situation <laughs> with any Notre Dame fan. Just ask Payne for the way he carries himself on social media. But it was interesting hearing you talk about Scott Satterfield kind of opening everything up on the defense, allowing people to earn their spots. That's very similar to what I have to do on this podcast when Payne makes me submit an audition tape every year to make sure he wants to bring me back as a host. Otherwise, yeah, to preferring to explore other options. One last thing, Payne, on this game before we close up shop uh, on the games of the weekend. How difficult is it from a power rating standpoint to assess a team like Louisville and find a baseline knowing they quit? They bring in a new coach, a culture, but the talent may not be anywhere close uh, to what it's expected to be. Difficult. However, we have them improved by a touchdown year over year. So, you know, when you look last year, they covered one game all last season. It was at home against Florida State by one point. And you take a look at the consensus closing point spread from our database. Louisville failed to cover the spread by an average of 18.3 points per game. Uh, <laughs> and that number ballooned out to 22 and a half the final game, uh, final five games. So like these odds makers just had a difficult time gauging the level of quit Dusty referenced uh, by the Louisville players. But I just think, you know, the kids wanted nothing to do with Bobby Petrino and Van Gorder to end the season. And you listen to Scott Satterfield. He's talked about, you know, uh, just what he's doing. He moved the spring practice up to early February. So you kind of get a head start on changing the culture and uh, adjusting the mindset and the player attitudes and I think the effort and the values of these players. So I I think that is going to help. I actually think, now the defense is extremely thin, but I don't mind the front-end talent. Um, And I don't think the depth maybe comes into play week one. And again, that's that's why we've seen this total continue to tick down a little bit. I think the vibe there defensively is a little different. They're going to be a pressure defense. They want to press. They're calling it the breathalyzer defense because they're going to be in your face. And so you have nine starters back that have experience on that side of the ball. But again, depth is a question. Can't afford injuries on the defensive side. But I do think in, in, in a game one situation, they're going to be a little bit more improved just because of the effort level. I, I really believe that. Yeah, I mean, Dusty mentioned the uh, level of quit he saw against Clemson. The game I won't forget with Louisville, and it was kind of the last game I probably handicapped with him, was when they allowed Georgia Tech to score every single possession aside from when Tech needed to take knees when that game was long since decided. Five games, gentlemen, in the books, the biggest matchups of Week 1. Dusty, uh, as I said at the top, I know you'll be on the call for Ole Miss and Memphis this coming weekend. I want to wish you safe travels. Happy to have you back in the fold. Uh, Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we bid you a fond farewell and reconvene with you next week? Best of luck this betting season. Uh, You know, we're always rooting for you. We'll try to give you the best information we possibly can. I would recommend you listen to any and all the takes that I give because, you know, they're the best. So I just say listen to me. We're going to make a lot of money this year. And at the very least, we're going to have a lot of fun. So it's football season, baby. Best time of the year. Happy betting, ladies and gentlemen. 
That's Dusty Dvorak. You can follow him on Twitter. He'll be with us every Wednesday throughout the course of the fall. And if you need more Dusty, you can listen to his daily sports talk radio show on WWLS, the sports animal in Oklahoma City. Dusty, we'll catch up with you next week, my friend. All right, boys. Good to have Dusty back in the fold. I will say one thing, Payne. When you're used to running a NBA Jam-style two-man game to get the three-man weave, you got to work the growing pains out, get the kinks out of the system, and uh, I felt we did a good job after you know working through some of that with the first game or two. Yeah, it was a little choppy to start, but uh, I thought the rapport was good. A lot of good information, and I think that's what separates us a little bit. Um, we are a podcast that's going to help you learn to fish and eat for a lifetime. We like to break these games down, deep dive them. We're not going to talk about 97 games and give you a sentence on each. Um, we want to break down the biggest games and, and cover them from all angles. Sometimes it's tough when you get you know the likes of Louisville, although um, interesting game there. But I thought it was good overall. Yeah, a little more standalone territory, and I'm sure our listeners, when they tune in, go, wait a second, you guys didn't cover any of the games on Thursday or Friday night. Hey, it's a holiday weekend. There's a lot to try and get to. Sure, we debated getting to the UCLA-Cincinnati game. wasn't really anything Friday that warranted our attention, but if you want our thoughts on the Bruins and exactly how we feel about this team, you have the Pac-12 season preview. Go back, give a listen. It may give you a slight inkling uh, as to our sentiments for their season opener. But Payne... When we look at the week one schedule, and it is a bit abbreviated, you have a number of FBS programs taking on the likes of FCS opponents. Those numbers will move at a rapid clip when they become widely available. Was there a game or two that uh, that caught your eye this particular weekend where we should be sending our loyal listeners to the window for an investment? Yeah, let's go with the Michigan Wolverines, and we're going to do it in the first half. So first half on Michigan, minus 20 and a half. Um, I know the sharpest shop in the world's dealing 20, but we like Michigan to come out fast. I'm just, uh, we're down on Middle Tennessee State. I, I think we've downgraded them seven points year over year. The drop off at quarterback, I think, is is one of the largest in college football. You're going on the road, hostile environment, only two returning starters along the offensive line. Um, and, and it's just, it's not that's not a position that you're just going to quickly insert talent at a program like that. So, I think the market's a little bit behind, especially on that tempo increase that we're going to see from Michigan's offense with Gaddis now running it. So it's going to make numbers like this, in my mind, have a little bit more value. So we like Michigan in the first half, minus 20 and a half. So hopefully they're up at the break by 21 or more. I got to ask you this question because I know listeners are going to ask the same thing depending on when they listen. Number is 21 if it's available to our listeners at that point. You just tell them to scale back to position and maybe go three quarters instead of a full. Yeah, sure. Is that, oh, that is code for Todd just looked at the screen and it's now starting to leak out. (laughs) Uh, You you know, at 21, obviously it's not as valuable. Um, Oof, that thing's going to go much higher too. Um, At at (laughs) 20, a little little look behind the curtain there. Um, we, We like Michigan the first half. Try to find 20 and a half. 21's fine. Um, it's. I think they're probably going to name the score here. So it's just. It's such a drop off for Middle Tennessee State at quarterback. There's not a lot on that offensive line, um, and offensively, I think Michigan's going to show some things at least early on. Um, in, in that offense, as we talked about, it's going to be revved up. It's going to be a faster pace. It's going to create more plays. Um, and so I think the tempo in this game is going to be increased a little bit, which is is the positive, right? Welcome to Jim Harbaugh. You want more plays in a game where your team's better. And so I think initially the market didn't didn't anticipate that increase. So some value on Michigan, especially in the first half. 
Time to make it rain, gentlemen. Week one of the regular season, Michigan in the first half against Middle Tennessee State. You'll flip to the game in prime time. You'll see us up by four to five touchdowns heading into the break. Be able to kick back and relax for some of the other evening affairs. Special thanks to Dusty Dvorak, as always, who will join us every Wednesday throughout the course of the fall. You, of course, can follow Dusty on Twitter at Dusty Dvorak. Follow the podcast, most importantly, at Bet the Board Pod. You can follow Payne at Payne Insider. I am, of course, Todd Furman, and you can follow me there as well. Pen, any final parting shots, any Labor Day uh, weekend drinking advice, tips, or uh, hurricane safety that you'd like to share? I'm just trying to stay dry. That's it. And remember, uh, NFL Week 1 podcast, which will be next Thursday, we will be drawing an iTunes winner. So go over to iTunes, leave the five-star review with a nice little comment. You're automatically entered to win a Bet the Board swag pack, which is a Visa gift card and some gear, T-shirts, pens, you name it. We'll announce that uh, winner on the Thursday NFL podcast. So get those five-star reviews in with the nice little comment before then, and you're automatically entered to win the prize. That's how we do things around here. Thanks, for everybody, to listening. A busy season ahead. College football week one. Be smart, be safe this holiday weekend. Most importantly, be profitable, and we'll see you at the window. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Bet the Board ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondry Plus and Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondry.com slash survey.